John chapter 12. John 12. The sermon this morning will be on verses 27 and 28a. John 12, 27 and 28a. Now, John 12, as I have said before, brings us into the last week of our Lord's work, life and work on earth. He enters Jerusalem, the capital city, the religious capital of the ancient, uh, ancient Israel. This will be the last time. It is pointed out to us in the context that it's during the, the Passover celebration, which is a celebration of an ancient act of God that benefited the ancient people of God. Namely, God told them, I'm going to come in judgment upon the e- Egyptians, but if you put blood on your door, I'll pass over you and end up saving you out of this bondage that you're in through the passageway of the Red Sea. It's hard. Okay. It's impossible for me not to say, methinks the Passover was pointing to a greater Passover, our Lord Jesus, where he passes over us, doesn't inflict divine justice upon us, but he inflicts it upon the Son for us and for our salvation. So there's thousands of people there that would have otherwise not been there. In the reading this morning in John 18, we see that Jesus said, look, I, I taught in the temple. I taught, taught there. I taught in public. He went to the synagogues as, as well. Well, he's in public now. This is his final public monologue where he says most of the words uh, in, in, uh, in the passage And uh, if we look back before our verses in John 12, 12 through 19, we have our Lord's uh, entrance into Jerusalem. This is his last entrance into Jerusalem. And then verses 20 through 24 begins our Lord's final public monologue. We've looked at verses 20 through 25, excuse me, through 26. And this morning we're going to look at verses 27 and 28 But I'm going to read a larger section for you. Let's begin in verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, now this is right after Gentiles were at the precinct there, at the temple precinct, and they say to Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip goes to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go to Jesus And they told him this right after, hey, Lord, there's some Gentiles here that want to see you. He answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Remember, the Son of Man is a phrase coming from Daniel chapter 7 that our Lord appropriates to himself, I think, more than any title Son of man is this figure in this prophetic vision of the future that Daniel was endowed with, uh, having done what he was supposed to do as a servant, he ascends up to the ancient of days, uh, peoples are given to him, nations are given to him to serve him, okay, so this is this son of man, which is interesting because there are Jews and Gentiles present here. As soon as the Gentiles are mentioned, Jesus says these words. 
The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified most assuredly. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He's talking about himself. Unless, I'm, unless I die and I'm buried and ultimately raised from the dead, uh, I'm not going to bear fruit. But this is going to happen. He, these are almost strange words now. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, I think he's picking up on the Daniel 7 theme, the Son of Man, upon ascending and in his current session, has many from all peoples, tribes, tribes, tongues, kindreds, and nations that will serve him. If anyone serves me, in other words, there's going to be, I'm going to have my own servants. Let him follow me. These are my followers, Christians, believers. And where I am, ultimately, there my servant will be also. And where I am, there my servant might be also. Will be also. Okay, so he's, he's confident. He believes the written word of God. Uh, and he's saying, look, I'm going to have servants all over the place. By the way, this, these Gentiles are here, a kind of a picture of a large influence, influx of Gentiles uh, that took place in the first century, but has sent ever since. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And then comes this. Now, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not become, did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. You can see why I stopped there about a year ago. And then about a month ago, I tried to pick it up again, and I'm going, no, I'm not going to start at verse 27. I'm going to go back and preach two sermons that I preached already a year ago to help get my mind into what's going on here. So we've already looked at verses 20 through 26. Greeks want to see Jesus. Um, Philip tells Andrew, and they tell Jesus, our Lord responds, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain, sinners saved all over the earth. Then he says these perplexing words in verses 25 and 26. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, 
Let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now, basically, he calls us to live for him and not ourselves. He calls us to live for him and to give up living for creature comforts only. To serve him and not ourselves. If those words aren't strange enough, he's calling disciples to a radically oriented life away from self-centeredness. Give yourself up for the sake of Christ. Serve him. And then he says these words. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This hour of his the, the pinnacle of his sufferings and his, his death, that mysterious uh, judgment of God upon the Son of God while on the cross. Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I should say? I'm troubled. Save me from this hour. In one sense, we could fill in the blank space and say, no, don't, don't, don't save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, let me make, before we look into verses 27 and 28a, uh, a contextual observation. I think it's very important, okay? That's why I read a larger portion of our passage. Here's my contextual observation. Our Lord just said, the hour has come, verse 23. So this is the same context. The time for his sufferings unto death and his resurrection is soon to come about, and he knew it, right? He tells us, the hour has come. You know, John uses that language. The Lord uses it as well. Many times in the Gospel of John, it ultimately points to the hour of the quintessence of his sufferings on the cross, It involves other things and other aspects of suffering as well, but that's its pinnacle. So now he says, the hour's come. He knows it. The Son of Man is going to be glorified. He will bear fruit due to his death and resurrection. He knows this is coming about. He will have some who serve him. Maybe even some of these Greeks that were there ended up being true believers. And he just called them to a life of self-sacrificial serving, promised that, promising that those who serve him will be with him and honored by his father. Listen to, to somebody from the 19th century. He had just now warned them against loving inordinately life, ease, and convenience. And it exhorted them to disregard it for his sake. And now he gives expression to his own self-sacrifice and shows how entirely he yields up his own life for men. I think that's what's going on. But the irony here between verses 25 and 26 and 27 is he basically says, give yourself up for my sake. And then right after he calls his, his disciples to that kind of a life, he says, oh, by the way, my soul's troubled. 
So we have now my exposition of verses 27 and 28a. In 27a, we are told of the inner state of our Lord's human soul. This is fascinating. Now my soul is troubled. If you have a red letter edition, it's in red letters, right? Jesus says this to whoever's there listening, certainly the disciples, um, probably some Pharisees, and most likely those few Gentiles said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now my soul is troubled. Our Lord gives us a glimpse into his soul. And at this moment, what is his soul doing? It's being troubled. It's being agitated. The hour has come, and he's troubled? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That sounds like a triumphal kind of a statement. Let's go. Let's get this done. Now, my soul is troubled. Listen to uh, Augustine. St. Augustine is in Florida. Augustine is the old saint from North Africa. Now is my soul troubled. What does it mean? How biddest thou my soul follow thee if I behold thine own troubled? See what he's doing there? He's saying, wait a minute, in 25 and 26, you said, give up creature comforts. How am I going to follow you if you call me to give up creature comforts and your soul's troubled? And he goes on, what is the kind of, what is the kind of foundation I can seek if the rock is giving way? The rock, capital R. In other words, you just called your people to radical self-sacrifice, and now, facing self-sacrifice yourself, your soul is troubled, your soul is trembling, your soul is agitated. What in the world is that? Now, that is human soul was troubled is clear. It's what the text says, right? Now, my soul is troubled. Maybe some questions Uh, And their answers will help us get to the bottom of this. Why is the question. Why is his soul troubled? Now, it must be due to the contemplation of what he is about to suffer. Is the Lord simply scared to die? Is he a scaredy cat? If that's the case, he seems to be showing less courage than some who would suffer martyrdom for his cause. Have you ever read the stories about martyrs who, while being drowned, lifted up their hands, men and women, I think boys and girls too, and prayed, seeming to be not troubled. Of course, endowments of grace were being uh, given to them, so it you think it's simply because, oh, humanly speaking, soul is going to be separated from body, and I know that's not a pleasant thing, so I'm troubled by the mere prospect of physical death, separation of soul and body, uh, just like other people. 
I, I don't think we should look at it that way because, as one example, the history of martyrdom testifies that God gives grace for martyrs to die a, a quiet, courageous death. We can't compare death by martyrdom with our Lord's death, by the way. Our Lord's death was not that of a martyr for a good cause. Okay, He's not a passive victim to circumstances he had no control over. No one takes it from me, John 10, my life. I give it up. I give it back. Here's another man. It was not a shrinking from mere bodily sufferings. For he had exhorted his disciples to boldness and endurance of the face of every torture. Now my soul is troubled. Why? Can't be merely just bodily sufferings. Here's another question. Why is his soul troubled if not for his soon coming bodily sufferings? If it's not merely bodily sufferings, here's the same man, it was an inward overcoming sense of the divine wrath which he had to endure as a substitute for sinners. Ah, that's different than martyrs dying, right? Here's the sinless son of God, according to his human nature, contemplating the cup of wrath that, was, that he knew was coming to him. He well knew Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah 53, 10, yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He, he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So this is still in the future. This is toward the end of this week that we're looking at, the last week of our Lord. But this is what troubled him, the prospect of being a curse for the cursed ones. Hear these words. We sing them. Many hands were raised to wound him. Didn't he just get slapped in John 18? None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Our Lord was at this moment contemplating the stroke that justice would give him. He was contemplating becoming a curse for the cursed. He was musing upon his damnation exhausting death and this is what troubled his soul. Not merely the contemplation of separation of body and soul, which is bad enough, but being the wrath-bearer of divine justice. How about this question? Since his soul was troubled, did he sin? Is this sinful troubling or troublement? Is he agitated about the prospect of drinking the cup of divine wrath and therefore 
sinning. Now, most of us are going to say, mm, whatever's going on here, it's, uh, I don't want it to be sin. It's not sin. Is it a sin to contemplate a horrible future event and be agitated by it or be troubled by it? Is it necessarily sinful to contemplate something most likely you know is going to actually happen and go, oh, wow. I would say no. It is natural to human nature to be affected by such thoughts. Matter of fact, if our Lord contemplated um, exhausting divine wrath and went, whatever, let's get, it, let's get it over with. It would like be trivial, right? It would be a violation, I think, of the third commandment. Here's another old friend of mine, Cyril of Alexandria. By the way, most of my old friends are all from the same place. The theological center of Christian Trinitarian development or understanding and Christological understanding, North Africa. Cyril of Alexandria said long ago, the Lord is troubled by what he thinks and anticipates. Have you ever been troubled by what you're thinking and anticipating? Yes. He's not yet on the cross. But he experiences mental anguish ahead of time as he looks ahead to what is going to happen and endures by his rational faculty the thought of future events. He even uses this word, mental anguish. And I want some of you to squirm having heard those. Really? Jesus suffered mental anguish contemplating what was about to transpire? Did he ever hunger? Yes. Did he hunger without sin? Yes. Did he ever thirst? Yes. Did he thirst without sin? Yes. Did he ever get weary, tired? Yes. A few days ago, I was texting some friends. I said, I woke up cranky. I didn't sleep well. I think justifying my bad attitude. Uh, did Jesus ever get weary and tired and sin? You know, sometimes when you're feeling the frailty of your flesh and you are just tired and maybe you haven't slept well for a few days, you tend to be more on the edge and easily provoked to sin. But Jesus experienced those kinds of things and never sinned. So my question is this. Since his soul was hum uh, troubled, did he sin? And I'm saying, no, but it was troubled. Here's a friend of mine from the 17th century. Christ was capable of no sinful trouble. See what he just did? We could say it this way. But he was capable of whatever trouble means. But it's not sinful. Our troubles are upon reflections for our own sin and the wrath of God due to sin. Our troubles are because we have personally sinned against God. His was because those given to him had sinned against God. Our troubles have mixtures of despair, distrust, and sinful horrors. There was no such thing in his trouble. His trouble was in the very nature of it, 
not only pure and clean, but also sanative and healing. What does he mean by that? Well, let's listen to the words again. Now my soul is troubled. And it doesn't say full stop onto the next story. It says, and what shall I say? Contemplating the coming wrath upon him, he's troubled and immediately says, what shall I say? Shall I give in to this agitation within? Shall I allow natural passions, this side of the fall into sin, get the best of me and derail my soul entirely from the divine plan? Shall I do that? It's immediately after he says he struggles, he asks this question, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. But again, he says these troubles of our Lord were sanative and healing. Remember Isaiah 53, 3. A man of sorrow, sorrows and acquainted with grief. With, oh, this is heavy. Acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows, man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, and in the process of reclamation, he endures grief without sin. Why? Because we endure grief and sin all the time. We get easily derailed by some of the trivial thoughts about the future. Here he is. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. You think the Lord knew Isaiah 53? That's Isaiah 53 and 4. Yes. Do you think he believed those things? Yes. If we could pull him aside at this point in his earthly ministry, Jesus, stop. Okay, now my soul is troubled. Does that have anything to do with what Isaiah said would happen to the serving, uh, to the, to the Lord's servant in Isaiah 53? And our Lord, what would he say? Of, of course. See here, then, our Lord according to his human nature. Troubled, grieving, sorrowing, but not sinning. Have you ever been troubled, grieving, and sorrowing? Yes. Sometimes because of our own sins. Sometimes because of the sins of others. But Jesus was troubled, grieving, and sorrowing, but not sinning. Uh, that's why I think this older writer says, sanative and healing. I'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so that was verse 27a. What about 27b? In 27b, we have a question and its answer in the form of a question. Some of the versions might have the answer not in the form of the question. I think it's okay to read it that way. And what shall I say? Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say this? Father, save me from this hour. Do you think I should say that? 
Here's a glimpse of hope for us. Though our Lord was troubled, acquainted with grief, he was not derailed. He composed his troubled, grieving soul. He conquered the temptation to be derailed from the will of God that the thought of the horror of his impending wrath-bearing death presented to him. This is not like us. This is why I'm saying this is sanative and yielding. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, so here is this temptation to allow the passions, the natural passions of a human soul this side of the fall of sin with all its infirmities. Here's the temptation to allow that to actually become transgression. It is as if he was saying, shall I request of my father to help me abandon my mission? Um, he checks his soul quickly. Yet without sin. There's even more hope for us in the next words. This is the third point of verse 27. In 27c, we have a rebuttal of the question and it's answered, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. In other words, no, I shouldn't say that, and I'm not going to say that. I came to this hour. This is why I'm here. So we could say, ah, the Holy One is, is committed to his holy mission after all. I came to this hour for the very purpose of suffering for my sheep, to suffer in their place, to stand condemned for them, to bear their guilt. My sheep must and will be set free from their guilt. I have appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and that is what I will do, putting words into our Lord's mouth. Then we have verse 27, or excuse me, verse 28a. This is weird. Kind of. Could this be a prayer? Father, glorify your name. Seems like it. My wife and I were talking. Well, she wasn't. She was listening on the way here. And I said, did Jesus pray? Obviously, he prayed. Did Jesus pray for himself? Nobody's going to answer that one. That just sounds odd. Wait a minute. God prayed for himself? Remember the Christian confession, great is the mystery of godliness. The word, or son of God, who was with God and who was God, takes to himself a real human nature. Very God, yet very man. The nature he assumes is a nature that exists in the world, this side of the fall into sin and the curse. So that 
natural infirmities, not sin, but natural infirmities like wondering about the wrath of God coming upon him in the near future would be real experiences of his very manhood. And in the midst of all that, he immediately checks himself. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, remove me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come. For this very hour, I have come. I'm not going to give in. Father, glorify your name. Mere temptation to sin is not sin. James chapter 1, you know. So I think this is a prayer request. Father, glorify your name. I think it's a prayer request not only because of the words, but because of the response, this revelation of the Father through this weird voice thing we'll look at next week. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Father, glorify your name. So, real, human, troubling, troublement of soul is being experienced by the Son of God as he's contemplating the pinnacle of this hour, his wrath-bearing death on the cross, and immediately he asks the question, what shall I say? Father, remove me from this hour? Derail the divine plan? He says, nope, that's not what I'm going to say. He might have been tempted to say something else, but he didn't. He immediately checks the sensitive part of his soul uh, with his rationality, with his mind that knows the will of God. There's a lot to learn about how we don't do this, by the way. Um, Using me to make thy name glorious over all the earth. I'm the son of man. I'm going to have servants among Jews and Gentiles all over the earth. But in order to get that reward of my efforts, I must suffer. Glory comes after the suffering. Make much of your name through me. Make the name of the true God known throughout the earth. We're a long way from where, this, from where this happened a long time ago, right? And what's happening? We pray uh, to the Father, through the merit of the Son, by the gracious um, influences of the Holy Spirit. The, the name of God is great in our church, not because we're great, but because His great, He's great, and God has made good on this prayer request of the Son of God, while in his incarnate state. Father, make much of yourself. By the way, Father, earlier in the Gospel of John, makes making God his own Father, makes Jesus the natural Son of God. God, you're making yourself out to be God in John 5. Remember when they pushed back when he said, my Father, you can't say that. That That makes you equal to God. Does the Father, can we contemplate the Father apart from the Son? 
No, he's not a father without a son. He's eternally the father. Therefore, the son is eternally the son. Father, glorify your name. Don't don't do anything with me or the Holy Spirit. It's just the name of the father. We can't contemplate the father without son and father and son without spirit. So we could say, Father, glorify the Trinity. Daniel saw in a prophetic vision the future service of the Son of Man. Not only his own service, but the service of those who benefit from his service. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the Son of Man. That which was future to Daniel is present in me. I am here to gain a kingdom with people of all nations to serve me. That's what glorify your name means. We're going to go through with this. I'm going to put my face like a flint, like a shark object, object, and I'm going I'm to cut through whatever sufferings I have to. I'm going to endure what I have to to secure the end, the glory of the name of the triune God through the work of the incarnate Son of God for us and for our salvation. You see why... I trembled a year ago and didn't want to penetrate, didn't want to go into these words too hastily. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I have some contemplations and, um, I think I have three, and I'll work through one. There are many, many other contemplations we could work through here. There's a lot going on here. Um, one thing I don't mention, I think, in my... Con- you know what? I just better get to the contemplations. The first is this. We have here a clear indication to the true or real humanity of our Lord. Do we not? Now, my soul is troubled. As man... Our Lord had a soul. Very God, very man. He had an immaterial part of his humanity. Body, soul. In our own confession, we say this, two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Person is the Son or Word of God. The natures are divinity, humanity. Inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, one isn't changed even the slightest into the other. It's not like Jesus' humanity is. 90% human and 10% divinity. It's very man. Without composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? We have here a clear indication of the true or real humanity of our Lord, now my 
soul is troubled. Here's our confession, chapter 8, paragraph 7. Christ in the work of mediation, our text is him working for uh, the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, divinity and humanity, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Do you think the divinity of our Lord is troubled? Nobody shook their head, yes, good, we're not heretics, at least on that issue. No, but the person of the Son of God incarnate speaks and says, my soul is troubled, agitated, grieved. Now, even though sometimes these words are used of Jehovah in the Old Testament, we we can't take them, like, literally, should we? It grieved God. Like, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. Bummer. It must be using creaturely language to depict something that needs to be scrubbed of creatureliness before we attach it to God, right? Something like that. We can't do that here. This is real humanity. Troubled. It is proper for human nature, the soul, to be troubled while contemplating what our Lord contemplated. Our Lord was very man. Now, why is he very man? Because it is very man that needs to be repaired. And he is repairing our nature in order to bring it in himself and us in him back to God in a safe relationship with God. He even has to repair our, our soul, our grief, our trouble. He has to endure circumstances where, humanly speaking, according to his uh, human nature, he would endure passion, that is, um, uh, information in this case, either entering his mind or being rethought about in his mind that works pressure on him, on his human soul, to respond. And when passions become sinful, well, we we all know what that's like. We, We do that. But he endured the thought of that. He actually endured it itself. We're not there yet. It's at the end of the Gospel of John. You remember there's that other time... If there's another way, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Not my human will in conjunction with my other creaturely faculties, very man, when I escape from pain and trouble, especially impending wrath, not my will, but thine, God's will, be done. We have the same here on a different level. This is in anticipation of that. But we have the very manhood of Christ here. Uh, Surely he he bore our griefs. He was grieved here. He was agitated. I didn't use all the words, some of the commentators. I was not chuckling, but I was reading the commentators, especially the old ones. They use synonyms for troubled 
It would trouble some of you, some of the words they use. You'd be going, no, my Jesus doesn't do that. No, he did that without sin. And that's the point. You remember verses 25 and 26. Give yourself up. Quit living for this creaturely comfort world only. Serve me. It's one thing to say that, like, like, yeah, I'm going to live for Jesus. It's another thing to do it, right? That's why Augustine said, wait a minute, you just told us to live a certain way, and now you're, you're wondering if you want to live that way yourself? What happens when the foundation, the rock itself, is crumbling, is troubled? Well, here's what's happening in one sense. He's being troubled, infirmities of human nature existing this side of the fall and curse into sin. Not really as a test, you know, to see if he would sin or not. But he's assuming that which we do and don't respond to well at all. He's assuming, in his case, the contemplation of curse and wrath coming upon him. He's weighing it, and he's saying, that's pretty bad, that's what's coming up here. But you know what? This is why I'm here. This is what I'm doing. Father, glorify your name. How often do we contemplate something that's distasteful that we know is either actually or at least potentially around the corner and we go, oh, man. I was telling some sheep this week. I met with them. I, I told them, you know, driving out to meet you, I didn't have rock gut. If you've never been a pastor, you don't know what rock gut is. My wife hasn't been a pastor, but she knows what rock gut is. Rock gut is... When a pastor is contemplating a situation that he really doesn't want to enter into and he thinks it's probably not going to go well and it just causes him to lose, in one sense, faith in the promises of God and despair. Uh, I've never despaired. Uh, other guys have told me that, about their despair. Horish, hellish, excuse me, despair. Not believing the promises of God in hard circumstances. Saying we believe them, but deep down in our soul going, The Lord was troubled so that he would not sin with the trouble. Because we've been troubled and we sin with it. And we needed a righteousness. So here we have very man displayed to us. Well, that is it. If that doesn't commend to everyone Jesus, I don't know what would. So if that didn't, let me just close with this. I commend to you the very Son of God, assuming our nature, assuming our duties, living perfectly under sometimes the worst of circumstances, never sinning, procuring a human righteousness that because of 
God's mercy is able to be credited to our account, but also dying as a substitute for those who personally deserve the wrath of God. He didn't personally deserve it. He personally and voluntarily took it in order to bring us to God. There's the gospel in long fashion. And this should also commend Christ not only to unbelievers, but to believers as well. It should fuel our thankfulness, um, and it should, ah, it should also be a good example to us. What do we do when our soul is troubled? We slap it upside the head. We go, stop it. I'm not going to follow these passions to potential despair. I'm going to admit this is troubling. The greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Somehow, some way, give me grace. Help me to walk. You know how you go through those dark seasons, and then when you come out, you look back and you go, it's not like I was super saint or anything. I was receiving grace. At the time, I didn't always sense it, but it was happening, and I didn't apostatize. We should be amazed. We're not apostates. Why? Well, ultimately because of the grace of God, and we should be thankful. Let's pray. We're thankful, Father, for these mysterious words. Now, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But to this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We are thankful that the name of God, the name of God the Father, which can never be ultimately contemplated without God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, has been glorified by through the work of the of the incarnate Son of God. And 2,000 years later, we're still receiving grace and benefits from that wonderful work. Thank you that the Savior assumed our nature to repair it and to bring it in his own person to glory as the first fruits of the rest of us that will come to glory, body and soul. We'll see him as he is, we'll be like him, And this is our great hope. Uh, Bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.